0: well
1: see you can't please everyone so
2: you please yourself. This is your host Johnny Lazer, here and I have something for you today The following is an excerpt from the November 21st 2020 show Season 2 episode 12 with Mark Cushman the author of These Are the Voyages He guided us through 3D images from a Star Trek Viewmaster reel set based on the Star Trek episode, The Omega Glory. You can see it if you go to our website and follow the link to our Vimeo, YouTube, Roku, and Amazon Fire streams. But this is a conversation that extended beyond and included an interesting conversation with Robert Swarth, an NYSA member, who worked on Close Encounters of the Third Kind as well as several other movies. Now, Roddenberry, he would send out... They, they would have a, 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 a like a, kind of an idea for a script and then send and send that out to writers and see what they got back. I guess that's the
1: process. The yeah, pros- uh, the, yeah he, a lot of the stories came from Gene. And uh, if he had really developed the story, he would take a credit, uh, a story by credit. But he would give them springboards for nothing. And... Uh, you know, they'd come into a meeting and they would tell them the idea they had and he'd say, well, we've already done that or we're doing a script kind of like that. But I want to put you on assignment. Here's an idea. And Gene would give them an idea and then they would go write their script. But then they would start getting, uh, or they'd write their treatment. And then they would get memos and make changes and then write the script and then get more memos and do a rewrite. And then the staff would take over and either Gene Roddenberry or Gene Coon would do additional rewrites. Uh, and that's why the Star Trek scripts episodes play so well, is because there was no other show that was rewriting the scripts as much as Star Trek. They scared a lot of writers away. Writers would come in, and they're getting paid you know, $4,000 to do a Star Trek. They could get the same amount of money to go do a Bonanza, and Bonanza was so much easier. The producers didn't make them do 10 drafts.
2: Now, now, Roddenberry came. He was a military guy, right? He was a, he was in, yeah. and he was a cop, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, he was a, a pilot, captain in the uh, Air Force during World War II. Flew combat missions uh, in the in the Pacific. Uh, his plane crashed coming back from one of those, and three of the crew members died, but he survived it. Then after the war, he became a a, a civilian pilot for Pan Am. And, uh, and one of the planes he was on, he wasn't flying that particular one, um, but it crashed in the desert in uh, Saudi Arabia, I believe. And the two pilots were killed. And Roddenberry was a passenger on that plane. he had just delivered a plane, and he was flying back on this one as a passenger in uniform. And uh, with two, two broken ribs, he led the surviving passengers out of the desert which was several hours of walking across the desert at night to get them out of hostile area because it was not an area where people from the Western world would do well. Uh, and then uh, after that, he became uh, an LAPD motorcycle cop in the early 50s and rose to the rank of sergeant. Um, and he was assigned to work on several TV shows by the police department as a technical consultant Including Dragnet, he was one of the writers who was providing uh, stories to Dragnet from the files of the LAPD, and that got him to want to try his hand writing some, and that's how he became a TV writer, and then later a TV writer producer.
2: Two things you have. uh, Well, one thing is you know I remember Half Gun Will Travel, Paladin, Paladin. Where do you roam?
1: He wrote more scripts for Half Gun Will Travel than any other writer.
2: And it's funny, you know. The ones that i enjoyed and i enjoyed you know most of uh, have gone will trouble who wouldn't and he's a guy called shakespeare probably the guy the whole thing is great with the little with the card but uh the yeah. the ones that i enjoyed most i had no idea until i saw because now i look for the writers because i when mm-hmm. i get like a story i look for who wrote it and it was you know it's it's amazing like he did the, the touch points this guy had and his he had a distinct style a morality that he builds in it's really very fascinating his yeah. writing style
1: I mean, one of my great experiences, besides interviewing him for the books, uh, which shows you how long it took to do these books and get them out, because he passed away several years before the first one was published, probably more than 10 years. Um, And Bob Justman, who I interviewed, passed away before the first one was published too, but just by a few months. Um, But it was an honor interviewing them and uh, eye-opening and going through their memos, which they gave me access to. But uh, I pitched to Gene for Next Generation. I pitched the, um, the episode Sarek to him. And that was a wonderful experience. And I had been told by so many of the other writers who I interviewed for these books that he was just a terrific person to pitch to. And I'd met him, and I'd interviewed him. But, my, but then going in and pitching that story to him, uh, he was just a fun producer to discuss a story with because he had such a creative mind. And the sparks would fly between you and him when you would pitch something that would catch his attention. And you would develop it together in his office, and then he would send you home to write it. So he, he just had a very open mind. But the things, on your point, John, the, thing, the things that he was always adamant about was these were morality plays. They had to have a strong central theme. You would pitch an idea to him, like I pitched that one. I said, you know, I want to see what happens to a Vulcan when he goes through senility. And what if Spock's father, who would still be alive but is 100 years older, is on the Enterprise being taken out to negotiate a peace treaty somewhere and then insisted on him because he had done the original treaty 100 years before. What they don't know is Sarek is going through senility and has secluded himself on Vulcan, but he agrees to come on this trip because he knows how important it is. And the internal anxiety he's feeling manifests itself in the crew members around him. So now Riker is challenging Picard and so forth. You know, there's a lot of uh, anxiety and and anger on the ship and things we hadn't seen that cast go through. So that was Sarek. But, um, But I pitched it to Gene. He loved it. We talked about it. But before he would give me the assignment and say, go start writing it, he said, uh, so what's, what's the theme, meaning what's the point mm-hmm. of this? And, uh, and I had one, that looking through a proud Vulcan and how they would try to hide their emotions and try to hide that they're going through senility, we can see what we go through as well. When you get to an age where you're not as sharp as you used to be, you can't handle what you're feeling as well, you can't communicate as well, you can't do things as well and so forth. And so he was satisfied with that. He said, go, go do it. Uh, But going through the memos from the original series to do these books, you know, he would often ask that to the writers. They would pitch an idea and he would like it, but he would come back and say, we're having trouble with with this one because we're not clear of what the theme is, what it is you're trying to communicate to the audience. That will make this one special than uh, the other episodes unique. And that was always important to them. Uh, so you know that's why you saw stories on Star Trek about um, uh, uh, prejudice a lot, about the black and white. One, I think, which one is that. Let that With be your Frank last Gorshin, right? Yeah, that's genius. Yeah. Half white, half black. Yeah, but
2: on the other side,
1: and you don't notice that till the end. It's brilliant. My God, that was brilliant. That was a great scene in the briefing room where Kirk is Can't saying to Frank Gorshin, who's hunting down the other guy. And he says, you keep calling him your kind. Your kind always does this. He says, you know, he's the same as you. And Frank Gorshin's character looks at uh, Kirk and says, what, are you blind? His people are white on, on, on the left side and black on the right side. My people are the opposite. And it was just such a great thing in 1968 to make that kind of a comment about racial prejudice. Who wrote that I one? thought that it was brilliant. Who wrote that one? Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn, wow. Uh, under the name of Lee Cronin. What you also find out reading my books is that when Gene Kuhn left Star Trek at the end of the second season, uh, one, he was involved all the way through the end of the second season even though his name was no longer in the credits as the producer. John Meredith Lucas was because Gene had stepped down as producer but all those scripts he had, had developed. He'd worked with the writers writing all those scripts. So his fingerprints, his DNA, is all over the entire second season, even though the last ten episodes or so say that they're produced by John Meredith Lucas. But in the third season, he wrote four episodes. But he had to do it under the name of Lee Cronin because Gene Kuhn had signed a contract with Universal and, NBC, and ABC to do it, to, it Takes a Thief, and then uh, he switched over to Name of the Game uh, with Universal. And so he was under exclusive contract to them, but he loved Star Trek, and he felt loyal to Star Trek, and Gene Roddenberry loved Gene Coon's writing, so he said, write some more episodes, but he had to do it under a pseudoname, and it's really fun in that third season book to see the letters, or the memos between Gene Roddenberry and Stan Robertson at NBC, and uh, they refer to the writer as Lee Cronin. Because they couldn't put Gene Kuhn's uh-huh. name in the memo, because if one of those memos got loose and made its way over to Universal, Gene Kuhn could be in a lot of trouble. You tell some funny stuff in there about what, what was uh, the, the lady that, that uh, what was it? The Bones' He's, assistant, I can't think. Um, uh, Nurse Chapel. Uh, 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 uh,
2: yeah, Nurse Chapel. Major
1: Majel Barrett, yeah.
2: Right, he ended up marrying her and how he got her into the, how he kept her on.
1: Well, she was Gene Roddenberry's mistress. So he put well, her in the So on it was for a while there, right? He had something going on with her, right? Oh, yeah. At the same time, he would do Ménage Paul. <laughs> I the, love this guy. And leave the curtains up. He was very proud of it. And Harlan Ellison was he one of the guys, You were just talking about Harlan. Harlan would uh, come by and look in the windows because the blinds were open. And he would see Roddenberry with Nichelle and with uh, Majo. The major was Jean Rotterbury's mistress. And uh, so Jean cast her, and a good actress. He cast her as the part of number one in the pilot, The Cage. And NBC insisted that she be taken out when they did the second pilot. They said, don't don't keep her in. Not because she wasn't a good actress. She's very good in that pilot. But Absolutely. But she wasn't known. She, she wasn't a name. So they said, uh, we don't want her. Uh, so he found another part. For her on Star Trek, as uh, as Nurse Chapel, and also the voice of the computer, and then he brought her back on uh, Next Generation as Deanna Troy's mother. So he found her lots of work.
2: Yeah, and and uh, mention D.C. Fontana, like how you know how many people know that's a woman.
1: Yeah, um, Dorothy Fontana was Gene Roddenberry's secretary, and she was with him from day one. She was there when they did the first pilot. Uh, She was the one uh, who recognized, uh, who recommended uh, Leonard Nimoy, along with Gary Lockwood. Both recommended him to Gene Roddenberry, and that's how Leonard Nimoy got the part of of Spock. But uh, Dorothy was his secretary, but she wanted to try her hand at screenwriting. She'd already sold a couple scripts to Half Hour Westerns for her previous boss, Sam Peebles. And, uh, And it was Peebles who introduced her to Gene when... Uh, uh, Gene was looking for a secretary Uh, So she asked uh, Gene if she could try her hand writing an episode And he had a story called uh, Charlie's Law Which she she turned into Charlie X Mm -hmm. And did a great job So they gave her a second assignment Which was Tomorrow is Yesterday Which was the first comical episode On Star Trek Right around the middle of the first season And, uh, And they had a problematic script The Way of the Spores Which became This Side of Paradise my personal favorite episode and uh, uh, Jerry soul had written it but it wasn't working and so Jean gave it to uh, Jean gave it to uh, Dorothy and said if you can fix this script I'll give you the the job of story editor because the story editor that they had was leaving uh, and so she rewrote the script they loved the rewrite so she got the job of story editor and she stayed on through the end of the second season but there there's a letter in in the first book season 1 uh, each chapter uh, each episode has its own chapter and we walk you through the writing process with the memos through the production it's incredible you know, like i said what what day you what save location. a lot of money
2: you have to save yeah. a lot of
1: money on film school i'm
2: not joking i am not yeah. I, i've given it to people to you know to young guys who want to be directors i say
1: yeah and you continue, see the budget. It's you brilliant. see the budget the shooting schedule you see the ratings for every episode which we licensed from AC Nielsen, proving that Star Trek had a much better rating than folklore had told us. Uh, The reason it got canceled was because of the fights between Roddenberry and NBC, because of the content of the show. It was too risque for the network. Uh, The ratings did start to come down in the last year, but they put it in the death slot to get rid of it. Friday nights at 10 o'clock. But uh, that first episode, Charlie X, I, I put in fan letters that would come in over the next week for a lot of these episodes. And there was one to Dorothy that says, dear Mr. Fontana <laughs> because DC Fontana was her pen name. And the reason she used DC Fontana is the networks didn't think that a woman could write action adventure. So she just used her initials.
2: Dave, could you spotlight both of us put us side by side? Is that a possibility? Uh, what was the what was the original name of Star Trek? What was it? What, what did he pitch it as?
1: Um, it was always Star Trek. Wasn't was not it something to the stars or something? The pitch was wagon train to the stars. Uh, because NBC, to make them understand the potential of the show, um, wagon train was on NBC at that time and it was the number one rated show. And the and so the of course, p- if you're going to pitch to a network. You try to find a way to tie it to their top-rated show and say this would be Wagon Train, which each episode was uh, a different person's story with the regulars who were the wagon masters and the scouts as the Wagon Train went from um, the East Coast to uh, the West. And so he said this is going to be like Wagon Train but in outer space.
2: And we've got to finish at least with two things.
1: Lucille Ball, her connection to this whole thing. Well, she, she was the president of Desilu. Desi Arnaz had been, but he uh, retired after I Love Lucy. He stayed long enough to get the Lucy show started for her. They had divorced, and, um, and the Untouchables, and a few others. So she was president of, uh, a reluctant president of Desilu. And all they were doing at that point, the Untouchables had been canceled, so they were doing sitcoms. The Andy Griffith Show, the Dick Van Dyke Show, the Danny Thomas Show, all these things, Gomer Pile, um, And and they didn't own any of those. The only show they owned after I Love Lucy and the Untouchables and Birds, if you remember that. Oh, Birds, wow. Yeah, Helicopters, uh, was um, the Lucy Show. And she knew that the thing that could really keep the studio, studio successful was to own a hit show, not just to rent your stages out to it. So she asked uh, Oscar Katz and Herb Solo to bring her some properties. And uh, the property uh, Herb Solo brought in was Star Trek uh, because he had read Gene Roddenberry's pitch. And she, she championed it. She said, thought, thought this could run in reruns as long as Isla Lucy has. She saw the potential. So she gave it the green light. Uh, the board of directors, the old guard, tried to talk her out of it because of the cost of doing half a science fiction movie every week. And the first pilot cost uh, about five hundred thousand dollars, which would be about five million today. The second pilot they got it down to about four hundred. So that's like another four million today. And the network was only putting up half the money. The studio had to put up the other half. So that's a big chunk yeah. uh, gamble for a small studio, for a television studio, and uh, and NBC ordered 16 episodes, which was half of the first season. Back then, they would do 30-plus episodes a year, and even at that point, the old guard tried to talk Lucy out of it. They said, if you say yes to this, we still have to cover 50% of the cost, and if this show doesn't stay on the air for at least three years, preferably four, there won't be a big enough package to rerun. And we'll never recoup that expenditure. And this this show could kill the studio. And she went ahead with it anyway. Well, they were right. She was right. It's now the most rerun show in the history of TV, more so than Isle of Lucy. But they were right, because halfway into the second season, she had to sell Daisy Lou to Paramount. They ran out of money. It was a combination of uh, Star Trek and Mission Impossible was just draining the studio of the money. It was the two most, uh, of the three most expensive shows done on television at that time, I Spy, Star Trek, and Mission Impossible. I Spy because it was filming around the world. Star Trek because it was half a sci-fi movie every week. Mission Impossible just because it was a big cast and a very elaborate production. Uh, so that torpedoed Desilu. And uh, Paramount took over and immediately cut the budget of Star Trek which is why the third season isn't on par with the first two. It's not because they ran out of ideas or weren't as good. Uh, it was because the budget had been slashed, and they had to film an episode in five days instead of seven or eight. That's going to kill you. Yeah. They couldn't afford the big guest stars. They couldn't afford uh, to shoot it on location. So you could see a difference in that third year.
2: Hey, listen, now we all have an- another reason to love Lucy. You know, I mean... Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah, um, Now, the last thing would be your... Uh, is, it, is it an audio... D, you, are you part of that? You're part of that, the, the audio? Yeah.
1: Excellent. Explain that a little bit, please. Um, Vic Mignogna, who was Captain Kirk on Star Trek Continuous, which is an award-winning web series, and he was also an ex- executive producer on that show, uh, I had written for that show. I wrote one of their scripts, and I was also the story... Uh, consultant on the show and I brought in Judy Burns to do a sequel to Tholian Webb she'd written Tholian Webb with yeah, god, Tholian and Webb is
2: brilliant, oh my god
1: Yeah, and, and she had a sequel back then that if they had had a fourth season they were going to do and she told me about that when I interviewed her for my season 3 book and uh, so I brought that idea to Vic and, and said look, one of the original Star Trek writers would be willing to come write this and it's a great story so he said, yeah, and we brought her in. Anyway, that's all backstory. Um, he had kept saying to me, you know, you should do an audio book of your, your three-book set. And uh, I said, oh, man, that's going to be a huge production. These books are 600 pages each. Uh, well, he did it. He um, offered to do it. And so he did this thing. It 28 hours long. It's got a cast of 100 because he reads all my words. reads my narrative but we brought in other people to do all the other parts including a lot of people from Star Trek like you mentioned Dorothy Fontana she's on it and we sadly lost her just last year but uh, she uh, she came in and read her memos from 1966 and 67 and redid her quotes from the interviews she did with me as did a lot of others and Leonard Nimoy was going to come in, but he passed away right before that could be done. And so his son, Adam Nimoy, who sounds a lot like Leonard, came in and That's did great.
0: it.
1: Uh, of course, James Doohan was dead. So his son, Chris Doohan, came in and did him. Well, Chris plays Scotty on Star Trek Continues and sounds just like his father. So, so it was really wonderful. Nichelle was going to do it, but she was sick. So um, her sister does Nichelle's voice. Uh, Rod Roddenberry's in there, Gene Roddenberry's son, and so forth. So we got as many original people as we could. We got siblings uh, of uh, and and offspring of a lot of people to come in and do this thing. And a few celebrity in there as well who are big Star Trek fans to fill it out. Uh, like Gene Coon had been dead for many, many years, so we had to have somebody else do Gene Coon and, and his wonderful memos. Oh, and so, yeah, they, we lost Bob Justman, so we had to have somebody come in and do Bob Justman. And Bob Justman's memos are so funny. He could have been a stand-up comic. Anyway, so it's 28 hours long. Um, audio program. So it's like an audio play, is what it is. Well, that sounds that sounds like something you can go to sleep with.
2: You know what I mean? At least it's not putting a divot in. And I think 28 hours, you're going to kind of drift in and out a little bit.
0: Yeah.
1: But, but I hung on one, every You word. do one chapter at a time. But.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, You know... It's amazing, and it's so wonderful that you went from this uh, uh, kid with a clothes hanger hanging out of the back of the TV to, to working with those folks. And that goes what? to show you, I tell people Watching all the time, Star anything Trek.
1: is possible. Was that? Watching Star Trek. Uh, Star yeah. Trek was the hard channel for us to get uh, NBC. Uh, I was on a dairy farm in Oregon. And we got ABC and CBS out of Portland fine. NBC would only fade in, kind of come in in a snowstorm during the summer. So all the kids have been talking about Star Trek at school. I wasn't watching. I was still watching Lost in Space. Uh, and, uh, was that was the CBS, right, right? Yeah. It was during the summer, like in July, August, that NBC kind of came in. And, <laughs> and you'd have to stand there and hold the antenna, hold the aerial, because I made a better antenna than it did, and we would be able to watch it. And the first episode I saw was Devil in the Dark, and I was hooked. I understood what all the kids were talking about. You know, there was something different about this than the other sci-fi shows. And it was those themes.
2: Listen, I would have done anything for one of these as a kid. I had this one. You know, but this is like, yeah, yeah, I had to get this because I just had to. You know, and uh, actually, you know, I I had been introduced to the concept of laser. I was eight years old at the time. But definitely what got me into the laser business, 100%. Was uh, Star Trek, because I went and built a laser at ten. From Popular Electronics magazine, I kind of figured out how to, you know, and you can get a kit. I wasn't that smart. I got a kit. I put it together. I didn't kill myself. You know what I mean? But a he he laser. But I only built that because I, cause of Star Trek. I went. I got to be. Able, I, I need a phaser. <laughs> but and literally, I, you know, a part of my life is dedicated. I'm an expert on that. You know, so so much came out of Lucy. And Roddenberry and this wonderful crew he put together, this magical moment that happens every so often, and was extra fortunate. That was good enough, you know, but he was extra fortunate that a guy like you fell in love with it. And turned it into yeah. this whole other process. You were it, everybody's fortunate in this, and we're all fortunate that you did it. I mean, we're, you know, yeah. I, I can't see how I, I love it. You know, and um, it it it's, it must be a, a great feeling for you. I know when I get on the set of SNL because I work with those guys a lot. I am uh, I'm in awe. You know, it's like wow, Belushi did this. So I know that feeling of how did this happen? <laughs> you
1: know, and yeah, and, yeah. You know, I, I try to impart why, that. Why to was people. this so good? Yeah. and why were some episodes not? You know, what went wrong? And I just wanted to know. And there hadn't been any books out that covered it to that degree. Uh, I've I've always been disappointed with books on TV shows. Because you get a little synopsis, get a little bit of trivia, a picture, and you move on. And there was so much folklore out there about Star Trek. And I just wanted to know what the true stories were. And, you know, I, I interviewed the cast, but they don't remember a lot. Right, right. A lot of years ago. Uh, but the but the spine of the book is the memos, the production reports, the actual Nielsen ratings. That information can't be fudged. That's that's built in. And uh, so that that's the thing that I enjoyed when Roddenberry opened up the memos to me and showed me 40-plus boxes. This size. where am I? Over there. You know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of memos. And so you know what they're thinking. You know what they were thinking with every episode, you know what all the unproduced episodes were that they couldn't do because the network said no? Or they just couldn't find it within their budget to do it? Uh, and uh, it's, it's, uh, for somebody who loves Star Trek, it's like a kid in a candy store. And that's how I was with all these memos. So then the challenge was how do we squeeze it down? You know, what do you leave out?
0: Hey,
2: don't disappoint me, man. I didn't think you left stuff out. Now you're freaking me out. What was that for, like, the 10th book?
1: Uh, I've done six. We did three. We've just have uh, a three-book set that came out on the 1970s, which covers the animated series, Volume 1. Volume 2 covers the Aborted Phase 2 series, which was days away from being filmed. You know, the whole cast was signed. The uh, sets were built. The costumes were back, everything. When they decided to make Star Trek the motion picture instead, and that's covered in, vo- in volume three, and just the remarkable journey of bringing Star Trek back—the fight, the difficulty with the studio—you know, on again, off again, on again, off again—it's just remarkable. And, and what they put Roddenberry through is yeah, amazing. That's a,
2: that's a pain. That's the, the creative process that is very difficult yeah. when you get to that. And that, I'm amazed that he could pers- You know,
1: that he pushed through it all. It's amazing. Yeah, and I thought it was going to be one book, but then I thought that with the first three. And, you know, and then you go in, and I'm in the Roddenberry Vault, and I'm finding all these battles and all these problems and things they have to work through. And I'm just thinking, you know, I, the, the fans would want to know this. They'd want to see this. So they they ended up uh, a three-book set. So those have just come out, and depending on how they do, uh, I'll continue.
2: Well, I hope you have better mm-hmm. luck than Lucy.
1: But actually, Lucy
2: worked out. You know what I mean? in the yeah. end what's it all about if you pay your bills and you're happy you know what i'm saying to leave a legacy like that i think that's the big thing you know, you know we all yeah. do we all want the five yachts uh, yeah yeah look
1: um, she was, she was i, I wish you five
2: yachts by the way so i'm not he you know.
1: was behind the two most rerun shows in the history of television you know seinfeld's catching up you know but uh uh, you know it's been around long enough but uh, Lucy and Star Trek uh, are the shows that have been seen around the world more times over
2: well to, to, to let everyone know the books are great um, you. you cannot make a mistake on any one of them uh, like I said before and you know other than the fact that he owes me like three dinners um, I found them and I loved them and I realized how, how, impor- how important they could be to people who are really trying to break into the business because it took me years to figure out who did what I'm not even joking. you got to know who to get the coffee for because that makes almost, like, that's 80% of the thing. Show up, get the coffee, and get the, but be prepared for the break. You know, be prepared for the break. And his, his uh, those books really get you into what everybody, you ever wondered what all these people did and the creative process. And part of that really hasn't changed, you know. But what, of course, what Roddenberry did, like, like I, we spoke the other day, he, he had tremendous detail, right, uh, in terms of his notes. Normal he was, production he was, meetings are like
1: that. In line. He, he was the visionary. You know what? Among the things I discovered that were so remarkable was um, uh, he rewrote the first 13 episodes. I mean, almost all the dialogue you hear in those episodes is from Gene Roddenberry's typewriter. Yet he didn't take credit. He'd let Jerry Sowell get a credit, Richard Matheson get a credit, and so forth. But I'm looking at the different drafts. And the show hadn't premiered yet. So they didn't know how Kirk was going to sound, how Spock was going to sound. Only he knew. And so he had to hand write those, rewrite those. Uh, and then he got burned out and he brought in Gene Coon, But that he was still very deeply involved with everything.
2: I'm not going to give any more of the stories away. Just one, and then I'm sorry I've been sucking up all of these questions. Yeah. Does anybody have any questions? I'm sorry about this. like Dave, does anybody put questions in the chat? Um, if if they are, I'm just going to ask one more, and I promise I'll be small because that's the other thing you got to learn on a set: be small.
1: Uh, they're also quiet. We got to get somebody to speak up.
3: I know. I yeah. What? Well, We're all sitting here
1: drooling. <laughs> Not all Ch- of you. Have, a few. A few have turned off. <laughs> the the, the,
3: the Chad yeah, is like a nerd. A nerd riot. The ladies, riot, just the ladies are coming down. Don't worry. There, there's
2: like a half a dozen cats that are looking for careers at this point. But Chad um, is
3: a Star Trek nerd riot. The, yeah. <laughs> the, the
2: just tell the one about the big rabbit thing, because that's a great story. Just, you know, I, I, did we I lose you yet? Yeah. About the oh, rabbit.
1: Surely, yeah, surely. Shirley was a very difficult production. Uh, they shot that out at Africa, USA, and Vasquez Rocks. And, uh, and NBC had big problems with the script. It was too fantasy-oriented. Theodore Sturgeon had written it. Wow. And Gene Roddenberry uh, had to drive out there on the location and rewrite the script on a yellow pad. Uh, as they were filming. Uh, but there were a lot of problems that happened on that set, and I'll tell you two, and one is the rabbit. I'll save that. I'll tell you the other one first. Uh, if you ever watch Shore Leave and you wonder why that tiger has a chain around its neck, it's supposed to be wild in the jungle and, and a threat to the landing party. So why do they film it with a chain around its neck? It's because it almost killed Shatner. <laughs> He had to climb up on top of the grip truck to get away from it. It was going after him. And uh, and so they put it on a chain and they weren't going to let it off. Uh, but the rabbit suit, that was... Um, oh, God, what was his name? The guy inside the rabbit suit. He was, uh, he was a lighting double on the show, so he was in a lot of episodes. A lot of times at the helm and so forth. And I, his name's escaping me at the moment. Bill Blackburn. Uh, but Bill Blackburn told me this story that... Uh, they put him in that rabbit suit, and they sold it on to him. And he realized at that moment he was claustrophobic. <laughs> he started to have a panic attack, and he had to rip the head off of the thing to get it out. And, and, and they calmed him down, calmed him down. He said, can't you use something like Velcro? But Velcro was brand new at that time, and they didn't have it. So Bill Tice resold the head on him. And he was in and out of that thing half a dozen times just to get that little bit in the teaser of the rabbit. Running along. Uh, but I, I got to tell you this, which kind of relates to it in a way. In Arena, Bobby Clark was the guy inside the Gorn suit out of Vasquez Oh, we had the Gorn suit,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: And it was hot out there. And, uh, and he had to wear that thing all day. So when he got into that suit, they told him don't drink any coffee for breakfast. <laughs> have a small breakfast. You can have all the water you want because you're going to sweat it out. But he did drink some coffee and uh, and so halfway into the first day he had to get out of that suit to Quick. Go to the bath. yeah and so they they took that thing and they rolled it down because it was all one piece and they rolled it down to his waist you know so he could pull it down a little bit more and he went up up into the honey wagon up the ladder that takes you up into the portable restroom and he couldn't close the door because his tail was sticking out <laughs> <laughs> But I was the only guy who thought to ask him, how did you go to the bathroom wearing the Gorn suit? And he was surprised. He was shocked that somebody would ask him such a thing. But it was a great story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You're a gifted writer. Those are great questions. And uh, you've been very generous with your time. Anybody got any other questions? I'm sure. You know, I'm sorry we for were, the younger we're,
3: guys. Um, go, ahead. I, go ahead. I was just wondering, um, Mark, did you interview all of the cast for your books? Uh, Were you able to get
1: Most of them. Most of them. I interviewed Shatner, uh, Nimoy, um, Walter Koenig, uh, Nichelle Nichols. uh, Who am I forgetting? Uh, uh, James Doohan. DeForest Kelly had passed away. And George uh, Decay declined. He didn't decline, but his agent wanted uh, payment for the interview. So my publisher wouldn't put it up, so we weren't able to get him. Uh, But we had everybody else, uh, Grace Lee Whitney, so I talked to all of them. I talked to all the -the behind-the-scenes people, people on the crew, writers, directors, producers, Roddenberry, Justman, Fontana, John D.F. Black, on and on. And uh, John D.F. Black and Dorothy Fontana actually uh, read the books before they were published to make sure I got everything right. (laughs) So whenever you find a chat room somewhere and somebody's trashing me and saying, Cushman, this isn't right, whatever he said. Well, the people who were there said it was. The people who were there proved it, and we have the memos. But I'm sure we got a few things wrong. How, how can you write books that size and not get a few things wrong, right? But we, we did everything we could to make sure it was as correct as it could be. Uh, and I, I just thought it was terrific that Dorothy and John took the time to read the manuscripts. And, you know, and what was fun is... So I would get, uh, I I think John gave me his memos on the phone, his notes on the phone. But Dorothy would send them to me, and Bob Justman would send them to me. So here I am writing these books and putting all their memos in the books. And you see their personalities as they're giving notes to the writers of Star Trek. And then I'm receiving notes from them on the book. That that was a thrill. And sometimes it would sting. Bob Justman, his first note to me was, this is very good, Cushman, but you have a tendency to overwrite. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. God bless you, Bob.
3: We have a question. Uh, one of our members, Bob Sworth, actually worked with Doug Trumbull on the special effects for Star Trek The yeah. Motion Picture. Did you cover those? I mean, those effects were amazing on that film. Did you yeah. cover that in your book about the 70s?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, volume three. Uh, volume one is, is uh, Roddenberry's pilots and the animated series. 1970 through 75. Volume 2 covers two years, 75 through the end of 77, where they were trying to get a movie made and rejecting Gene Roddenberry's scripts, hiring other writers, rejecting their scripts. You see the scripts, you see the memos, you see Mm -hmm. everything that's going on during that period. Uh, And then uh, Volume 3 is 78 through 80, which covers the making of the movie, including... Uh, the special effects. Because, you know, they had to fire the first um, company that came in. Oh, well, they Ambulance had the horrible,
3: horrible effects, those paintings where you see Kirk getting on the train and it's just a still painting behind him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I hate when that happens. The they
1: worked for a year for four and a half million dollars, I believe, and there wasn't hardly one usable frame. And Robert Weiss had a meltdown. And I interviewed Bob Weiss, I interviewed uh, a lot of people, and Twice was the calmest, nicest guy you would ever meet. And nobody I interviewed who knew him had ever seen him lose his temper until he sat in the screening room after a year. And they were finishing the filming of the movie, but the effects got started before they even started filming it. And there was nothing they could use. And he walked out saying, fire that guy, fire him. And they brought in Doug to do the effects, and um, he put a new team together. And they worked for nine months, and when Bob Weiss took the print to Washington, D.C. for the premiere on December 7th, um, he had to bring out a wet print. It had just been made by the lab the day before. So they didn't get to do any test screenings. If they had, they would have tightened the movie up a bit, but they didn't have any time. That movie went straight from editing to the lab to the premiere. Yeah, Bob was there. In the Premier,
3: he tells us. Bob Swarth was actually at the premiere in DC. I, I'm also curious. Yeah. Did you cover? You know, I, I, a lot of us absolutely love the soundtrack for the original series. The the music that you know, as you know, there have been some great CD reissues. Is there any material about discussing the scoring of but, the show and how that's? Is there stuff about oh, sure. that in the books?
1: Oh yeah, there's memos regarding that in the books, and I interviewed several of the Gerald Fried. Fried. I interviewed him. and uh, A couple others. Uh, who were did those wonderful scores.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, so music, awesome.
1: the music of the original Star Trek is just a, remarkable. And uh, I, I, I directed a parody of Star Trek once, and I remember the cast on the set and even a lot of the crew because, you know, we're recreating Star Trek in a sense, having fun doing it. And they were walking around just humming those, those songs. Yeah. Da 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 da. You know, and it would get in your head, and everybody on the crew was just doing that during the entire week we were shooting. Uh, it was contagious, and you realized at that moment how catchy that that music was. That that everyone on the crew knew these songs. Everyone in the cast knew this music, and the minute somebody would start humming it, everybody else was humming it for days.
2: Hey, what Great stuff. Did, what did Rod think about the uh, the SNL send up? You know the, uh, the the.
1: I don't think I ever asked him, and I never saw a memo from him. But he did not like Quirk or Quark or what. There was a show with Richard Benjamin, and oh, he thing. wrote okay. a memo. Uh, yeah, in the seventies, and it's in one of these new volumes, I think volume two. He wrote a, a, a memo to Paramount saying, "Can't you stop this? They're infringing on our copyright." You know, he did not think it was funny. He did not like them making fun of Star Trek. I, I think he probably liked SNL because they were making fun of NBC. They were for canceling Star Trek. That
2: was great with the limousine coming. It was a fucking
1: genius yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, so he probably enjoyed that. Clear the and set, guys. Carry I, that was hysterical. I'm Doug Drexler for the new books. Um, and he he did the, he was doing the uh, the photographic effects for a lot of the Star Trek sequels and the, mo- and the movies, and he worked on Star Trek Continues as well. And Drexler was working in New York, right up the street from you, at uh, the Federation Trading Post in seventy-five and seventy-six. And the SNL cast came in to get those costumes they wore in that skit. For him, he delivered them to the NBC, NBC Rockefeller Plaza for that thing and watched shoot it.
2: Oh, excellent. Nobody rewrote this, I can tell you. This is this is the little thing that came with the Viewmaster reels. I just yeah. got to read one line because it's just hysterical.
1: Sure.
2: Okay. Uh, Tracy now held his phaser on Kirk. Spock and Dr. McCoy. I'll talk to Enterprise, if you don't mind, gentlemen. That's, you know, when he comes in. As he used his communicator, Sulu and Lieutenant Uhura, on the Big E... That's what they called it, in quotation mark on the Biggie ass Tracy. That's great. This is just such a such such fun when you think about it. But no, nobody got a chance to review this. I promise you that. You've been yeah. so generous. Does anybody else have questions? Because I, you know, I've, I've certainly um, I have a million more, but I I don't I, I enough.
1: Anybody? Yeah, we've lost 10 percent of your audience. I think we're talking too long.
3: No, 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 <laughs> it's fine. Look, that
1: yeah, these are the ones that
3: want to know. We've unmuted, so this long. is the third
1: season of our meeting. I would be interested in hearing uh, from Bob Swarth about his uh, experiences on the the movie, the special effects, if he's still here. He was here a second I'm ago. Here. Can oh.
0: you hear me? Yeah. He's in the end. And,
1: and guys, I'm going to step away for 30 you. seconds just because I have to return this call. I'll be right back. i will be
0: right back. Yeah, well, I was going to tell Mark... Uh, I was in the screening room at MGM when we were looking at Prince just you know before. Why don't you he, hold that
2: until he gets there. back? It'll, it'll only be a few minutes. It's more fun. I, I think hey, that Tom Kester is.
0: I think. But so. let's stand by. He 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 worked uh, for me on uh, Star Trek, and and I, and my, my the woman that I am now married to for the last twenty years, I met her on Star Trek. So. Wow. Wow. What a history. This has really been a rich show. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, a big, fa- a big uh, family reunion or something. There's Tom. Hi, Tom. But one thing about that New York screening is they they put the reels together, uh, and as soon as they got enough special effects for the reels, they'd make that reel. And some of the reels were not – they had a lot of special effects. They hadn't gotten them done, so they started sending reels out to the, to the theaters so that, that they would have certain reels missing. And at the last minute, they and as the, the phrase was, these reels are damn wet because they yeah. they just got them out, sent it off, they went. Yeah, I have a picture of uh, an MG, All the prints were made at MGM lab, and I have a picture hiding here somewhere. If I I would have gotten it out had I known we were going to be going into this, uh, of a, a, a sound stage at MGM, and it's just one can after another, you know, two reels in a can, or four reels, whatever it is. Of the picture, all all being set up, it's it's going to be like it was like uh, what they're going to try to distribute the virus today, and how you get it out all over the country, because it had to open on December sixth, was it? It, it or, or yeah, I, th- or I think Paramount the Paramount uh... would have been in big trouble because they had signed, they'd already gotten money in advance from the theaters, yeah, and it was going to be their big Christmas opening, and uh, so. You know, that's why we, we had at Trumbull and Dykstra's company also, we had crews working like around the clock, you know, three different crews, you know, 24 hours for months. It's the only picture I ever worked on where money was no object. You know, if I needed a lens for a camera, a special something, they, they, everything had, they just had to have it, get it done. And we were doing the, one of the very last effects shots we got done uh, it was like days before the premiere. I, I, it's, it's so incredible. But I want to right. tell you one Robert Wise story though, you know, the editor of Citizen Kane and uh, uh, and a lot of other things. I was in the screening room at MGM and we were looking at a reel of it. And suddenly this, the sound was like five, ten seconds out of sync. No, the composite print and Robert Wise jumped up out of his chair and went into the editing the room. I think we weren't running, I don't know. Anyway, he, he fixed, he personally fixed it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> his editing background came into four right there. It was something, but I was working for Bob Abel's company before Trumbull took over. I mean, the politics were very complicated. I won't get into all that, but the, uh, I, I had done six test shots of the wormhole effect, all the streaking effects off the people's faces when they're, not not the exterior, just the interior on the bridge. And uh, Wise approved all six of those, so I was just fine, but they they didn't have anything else to show it. I mean, I know what, what else they tried to show and tried to claim, but it was just ridiculous. There were so many egos uh, yeah. involved, it was just awful.
1: Yeah, the only two that made it in the movie was that, Bob, the wormhole uh, which Abel and company and you guys did but also um, the one where the probe comes on board and you guys had that giant well super bright light that yeah, you're moving except around. The
0: John Dykstra's company had to go in and figure out how to uh, make that work because it was it was crazy you know the yeah. way they shot it I mean I, I uh, they they oh the mirror pucker effect they, they had and it was shot on 70 millimeter film. And Dijkstra works in this division, 35 millimeter, you know, eight per horizontal. It just—it's just insane. Just insane.
1: I'm uh, sorry I didn't get a uh, chance to meet you and interview uh, you, Bob. Did you talk to Doug Trumbull. Uh, no, but I had an interview from him uh, that we used, and but I did. I did track down a couple of the guys yeah, that worked a, on his a, team, uh, and I interviewed the editor, uh, Ramsey Todd Ramsey. Tom
0: Ramsey. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he, he loved Bob Weiss as well, and they would sit oh, yeah. together in the editing room. Uh, but uh, yeah, you would cool. enjoy volume three of this new series because okay. it's it, there's a very hefty cha- chapter that goes into the special effects and uh, and uh, a lot of interviews with you, people you worked with and things of that nature. It was quite, yeah, you guys were working around the clock. You were yeah. sleeping. You were sleeping in there.
0: I only did that once, and I found I couldn't. I couldn't. There was one where you know I had to be there in case something went wrong with I can't remember what what it was now, and they got me a room in this little you know motel that was very night nearby, but you know I was just I was useless. Uh, it it you it, it can't I couldn't work that way. But yeah. it turned out it wasn't needed anyway. But. Uh, uh, that that matte painting, some, somebody commented on awful. The the matte painting look, looked uh, it's this it's the one in Starfleet Command where the uh, the uh, ship comes in. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kirk gets on the
3: train and there's all still people in a painting behind it. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, okay. Oh, all we could think of is how much agony it was just to get it get those things done. I mean, the worst matte painting in it, um, it's that is the one on Vulcan with the giant. Yeah. That's yeah one. that's that, terrible that's the only one that's really awful
1: awesome. and yeah I uh, thought the, I thought the tram was okay but the uh, yeah. Vulcan looked bad and that was redone for the uh, the director's cut years oh, later it is? yeah yeah but I, I, they, I, haven't, I, they haven't released that on on blu-ray they released the original on blu-ray not the director's cut well
2: just to bring that up quickly if you want blu-rays I would suggest getting an extra player and a couple of because I was just reading the trade press, you know, the Blu-ray sales are down 34% at this point. So a third of the market is gone. So if you want to get stuff, don't wait.
3: I was going to ask Mark, Did that, I I know there was a director's cut, sort of a, a total reissue of the Star Trek, the motion picture. Do you think that improved a lot of the issues? I mean, it, it, you know, it worked, it's kind of interesting hearing about why the pacing was so off, just because they really didn't have time to edit it.
1: Yeah. The... Um they they were cutting that right up into a few days before the premiere, uh, and then they quickly put it together, ran it through the labs, and uh, and took a wet print out. So they didn't have any. Uh, Bob Weiss always liked to have previews mm. and have a preview audience, turn in cards, and do a recut. But they they couldn't with that movie. So it was it was kind of painful for all of them uh, at the at the premiere in Washington D.C. Nobody had seen it except Roddenberry and Bob Weiss and John Povel, uh and Susan Sackett. Uh, they saw it a few days before. Uh, everybody in the cast saw it for the first time at Washington DC. Walter Koenig told me he was slumping down in his seat. Walter uh, check off, Walter Koenig, slumping down. sitting bit, behind bit, 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 uh, bit,
0: bit. Kelly. I was sitting yeah. behind DeForest forest Kelly. and he the audience at that premiere in Washington D.C. Every time he and Spock said anything to each other, the audience just went crazy. I mean, yeah. And, and DeForest, he was really, he couldn't believe what the reaction was so good, you know, for what he was doing in the film. He was very sweet.
1: He, he was a very humble, sweet man. I, I got to say, I like Star Trek, the motion picture. Ah. Um you know, it and Wrath of Khan I think are the two best movies of the series. I I, I rated above uh, Voyage Home, which I know, I know a lot of people uh, like, but uh, uh, I think it was uh, felt more like Star Trek than any of the other movies. And I think it's a very uh, it's a great story, and it has a great theme to it. Again, we were talking about theme, John, earlier uh, with Gene Roddenberry, um, how important it was to him. And this this is about three characters going through midlife crisis. Kirk's going through a midlife crisis, trying to get back his one true love, the ship. Spock's going through a midlife crisis, trying to purge his human side uh, and be accepted by Vulcan. And V'ger's going through a midlife crisis, trying to find its purpose and its meaning. Is this all I am? And they all come together. You know? Uh, and, uh, and so I think it's wonderful. And, you know, I, when I saw it in the theaters when it came out, I was aware of the fact it was a little slow-paced. Um, I, I wanted there to be more action because I was young at that age. And I needed to be stimulated by fist fights and phaser fights. But especially uh, coming on the hills of Star Wars, you know, and Indiana Jones. But uh, over the years when I was doing these, this latest book, I watched it a few times. And I really enjoyed it, where if I tried to watch voyage home i don 't think it would hold my attention as much. Mm. It my made feelings, a better first impression yeah, my feeling when
0: when we were making the movie, you know they spent so much time reintroducing everybody yeah, as if we haven 't seen them since the show went off the air fifteen years earlier, but as you point out, it was in constant reruns that you, you, it was it was no you didn 't need to have all of this long, slow Preparation. For yeah. yeah. There's a there's a whole reel of the film, which I'm sure Wise would have cut down. He did cut it down too much in that director's cut. But, uh, but. Uh, oh, yeah. going around the Enterprise. Yeah, going around the Enterprise. Yeah. Why is that so long? Because we didn't have anything else to shoot, and so yeah. Doug trouble would keep coming up with one more shot, and one more shot, and they'd film it, and put it together. This is the same time we're building new new models and Dijkstra's. Doing his Klingon stuff, uh, Doug is working out the Spock strip sequence, which was his favorite. I think part of the whole, you know, project because he finally able to do something, you know, of his own. Because uh, he was not particularly interested in doing Star Trek at all. Yeah. But uh, but so but so the thing is, people already knew all these characters, so you didn't need to waste so much time introducing them. The other thing we had, as yeah. far as visual effects was concerned, was that I, as I when we're trying desperately to figure out a way, what can we cut, what what effects can we lose, you know, so we don't have so much work to do. And we put the the, the work print with Todd Ramsey, we put it on the movie and went through the whole thing. And that's when I realized that so many of the plot points are tied to a visual effect. You can't cut the effect out. Effect like why, why is there that whole business with the uh, science officer or the, the, the that gets fried in the uh, transporter, so that that means you have to make Decker into a, you know, take his place, and then Spock comes. But if they hadn't had to fry that guy in the transporter, uh, you would have, you know, saved a lot of uh, effects money and time on that.
3: I believe yeah. the guy who got fried in the transporter was actually a character intended for Star Trek Phase Two. Like they, oh, they yeah. had this Phase Two characters. I think they killed a few of them off at the beginning of the motion picture. Oh yeah. Yeah. The guy on the space station, too, the Vulcan, was going to be Spock's replacement in Phase right. 2. So the let in the movie, and then they killed him.
1: Yeah, the only cast member who wasn't going to come back for Phase 2 was Nimoy. And uh, so they brought in uh, a young actor who was going to play uh, a young Vulcan. And I cover all 13 scripts that were written for Phase 2 in Volume 2 of this new book series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were using him very well it would have been a very fun character because he hasn't been around humans at all and he's young and he's uh, he makes ro- uh, some wrong decisions including the wormhole that was supposed to be him in their the original draft in thy image which became Star Trek the motion picture was the character of Zon, the young Vulcan who made the mistake on the bridge that caused them to go into the wormhole. Ah. But they lost that character, you know, in the transport, as you said, when the script was being rewritten. Uh, the reason we got so much of Decker was because he was going to be a regular on phase two, ah. uh, as, along with uh, Leela. So there was a lot of buildup for two characters that were going to be in and out of one movie. But they were intended for the series, and when they made Star Trek the motion picture from that first script of the 13 that they had written, it was going to be the two-hour premiere episode. When they when they did that, the reason they didn't cut down Decker and Le- uh, Eilina uh, is because, one, two reasons. One, is they hadn't decided at that point to kill Decker at the end, or to lose both of them, mm-hmm. you know, in that merging. Uh, they, they were going to live and stay on the Enterprise, because... They were planning still of doing phase two after the movie came out. Paramount didn't 86 phase two. They just said, let's take that opening episode and make it as a motion picture for the big screen. Ah. And then we'll come back around and do phase two the following year. And we'll just shoot those other 13 scripts you've had written. So they were planning on keeping Decker and Ilea. But as they were filming the movie and they got up towards the end of production, John Polvo came up with the idea of the two characters merging and becoming a new entity. Mm -hmm. And they loved the idea, so they said, okay, let's do it. If they had known that was going to be the end, I don't think they would have spent so much time on those characters in the early part of the movie. But it was already filmed. It was already – you guys were already doing the special effects, Bob. So, you know, they were locked into it. That's what you find out in reading these books is is it was being – Bob Weiss told me it was the most difficult – movie he ever made because yeah. it's the only movie he ever made where the script was being rewritten as they were filming. Now, he, told he would me, usually go, he would do the Sound of Music, Sand Pebbles, West Side Story. He would have a complete script with storyboards before they started filming anything. Yeah. With Star Trek, they were reinventing it as they're filming. So that's not the best way to make a movie.
0: No, he, it's he surprising me it came it out a very as good messy as it did. Way to, He told me it was a very messy way to make a movie. That's, yeah. that's why I said to me messy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was his least favorite movie of all his movies for that reason, not because he was on that unhappy with the results, but the process of making it. Oh,
0: yeah. Why do you think that happened? There's probably a lot of good reasons, but if read his book, I mean, if if they were going to make it into a TV series, and they they built sets for it. Uh, yeah, and I mean, yeah. I tried yeah. to make a feature, and, and now Yeah, it was, Mark it is telling it was me ri- Something I didn't know anything about, about the Decker and Ilea, that whole concept. Exactly. It was I'm just saying.
2: A, I got that. But up to, at the top, you know, at the top deck at, um, at Paramount, uh, whoever owned it at the time, why, why do you think they were just lurching forward and doing oh, all stuff? I, I don't at just think top.
1: I know. I know. From my interviews with Roddenberry and John Powell and Bob Weiss and Harold Livingston. Uh, having their memos, but talking to them candidly about it. But I also interviewed one of the Paramount Studio executives who was in charge of that production that, for the okay. book, and and I just interviewed him last year, and he still doesn't get Star Trek. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. They had no respect for Gene Roddenberry. They wanted Gene Roddenberry to do the TV show.
2: That's the answer.
1: Phase two. They wanted him for that because they knew he knew how to do TV. But they, didn't, but they looked down on him as movie makers. So when they decided to take that two-hour opening episode, In Thy Image, and make it into the Star Trek, the motion picture, and put the rest of the series on hold, they didn't want Gene involved, but they already had contracts with him. So they couldn't make it without him. They brought in Robert Weiss and kind of put him in charge. Bob Weiss didn't know Star Trek. But either did these guys. So last year I'm interviewing this one executive from Paramount, and he's had a lot of years to figure it out. But he's still in 1978 as far as his feelings about Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry. And he just said, you know, Star Trek was okay for TV, but it wasn't a movie property. And Gene Roddenberry wasn't a movie maker. And so we weren't going to let him do this. We had to find a filmmaker. And we couldn't take his script; we had to rewrite it because he wasn't a feature film writer. He was a TV writer, and uh-huh. this had to be better than TV. So they forced other writers on Gene, and they would rewrite him, and then Gene would come in and rewrite them. So the script wars were going on during the entire filming of the movie. Oh shit! Yeah. And Bob Weiss was his head was spinning. He had never been involved in a production like this. He had never been involved with a production where The characters weren't being created for that movie, where he had to deal with the actors who had been playing these roles already, with the format that was already Mm. set, with the script that had already been written. So uh, it was a very frustrating experience for him. But they literally didn't have the ending of the movie until the last weeks of filming of the movie. They had an entirely different ending, which had originally been written for the TV series, which would have led into the other episodes. So it wasn't until the last couple of weeks when it became clear that Paramount probably was not going to go forward with Phase 2, that they came up with a better idea for the ending. Mm. And and as a writer, I can tell you, when you write a script, you always start with the end. Because that's going to influence all the scenes that are leading up to it. So to be a filmmaker and have already shot everything leading up to the ending, and then come up with an ending, is an is a ass-backwards way of doing it. How did and it, it do in the box would've... office? How did it do in the box office? Huh? How did it do in the box office? Right. Um, oh, it, it was, the, yeah, it, it, it was released uh, on December 7th. The premiere, as Bob said, was December 6th. And then it opened up in 200 theaters on December 7th. It was the number one movie during the month of December. And then it continued to be the number one movie well into 1980, which is why this last book goes into 1980. Uh, it was number two for the year, right behind Kramer versus Kramer. So they knew at that point they had to make another movie, but they didn't want Gene Roddenberry. So they took Star Trek away from him and gave it to Harv Bennett to do the rest of the movies. And, uh, and I cover this in, in Volume 3 because it's, it's important, because it kind of hooks into Star Trek, the motion picture. They took it away from Gene because the movie got mixed reviews. It did great business. Better than they ever expected. But but it cost too much, which was Paramount's doing, not Ronenberry's. And it got mixed reviews. So they wrestled Star Trek away from Gene. And he had to do some very clever fighting on Wrath of Khan, because they were going to kill Spock in the first ten minutes. and <laughs> and he and, they, and he kept telling them, don't do it. Please don't do it. And they wouldn't listen to him. So he leaked it out what they were planning on doing, and the fans rose up. And Paramount <laughs> was just flooded with letters and phone calls. So if Paramount finally decided, we can't kill him in the beginning of the movie, we'll wait to the end. Well, that's what made Wrath of so wonderful. Can you imagine if he had died in the first ten minutes? So thank yeah. Gene Roddenberry for that, too. Amazing. The whole thing is a
2: trek and a half, you know, from beginning to end. And it influences yeah. so many people. You know, you, you uh, just getting back to the original series, the flip phone. I hardly walk through a pair of doors that do this. I don't think about was it Charlie, who's the, mm. who's the guy? Wasn't it
1: Charlie? Old Charlie in the. Oh, Charlie!
2: But you know, I, I hardly, I never do, and I go. I, there was a kid who watched it because this is what he did. He went and built it, just like the flip phone, just like so much. Huh. The Enterprise, you know, the the special, because it really had a it, cultural it, really? impact. Incredible, incredible.
1: Bill Gates yeah. was watching Star Trek as a kid. Where do you think the internet came from? He wanted to have Spock's library computer. The whole world at his fingertips. Uh, the cell phone. Uh, DVDs. First time we saw them was on Star Trek. Uh, you know, it's... The, it's just, uh, the yeah, Yeah. The Bluetooth. Spock and Yuhura had that thing in their ear. That's the Bluetooth. Well, so, that's a credit. Uh, that's that's the, a credit. The to... MRI. McCoy scanner. On and on and on. Can I tell you my favorite story that I learned writing these books?
2: That sounds like the one uh, that's going the, to take for the us the few out. that Go are ahead. left
1: with us. Um, you know, it's amazing finding out that a lot of the things that became part of Star Trek came about because of budget or censorship, as you mentioned, John, earlier. Uh, the whole reason they came up with the transporter was because it would have cost too much to land the Enterprise on a planet every week. So the transporter became a way of saving money, And getting into the story quicker. The episode opens, they're stepping into the transporter. They beam down, boom, they're in trouble, right? Much faster way of doing it in the teaser. Uh, But the best story I heard, uh, which I got from the the memos and I got from Gene and the others, was uh, the Vulcan mind meld, uh, which an episode called Dagger of the Mind, early in the first season. And Morgan Woodward, again, played a guy escaping from a penal planet. And his mind has been semi-erased by the neural neutralizer. And they can't get him to remember what happened down on that planet. Kirk's down on the planet investigating, but Spock and McCoy hypnotize him, the old-fashioned way, to get to access the, the, the part of his brain that has been affected. And... A great memo, it's in the book, NBC writes and says, you cannot hypnotize somebody on the NBC television network. <laughs> they were afraid that viewers might get hypnotized watching that? the thing go back and forth. Rebellion and they going to let them yeah. do it. And Gene Roddenberry writes to them and he says, this is crucial to the plot. They didn't care about plot. They said, you just can't do it. Broadcast Standard says no. So he had to come up with with a way of accessing uh, Simon Van Gelder's mind without using hypnosis, so he came up with the uh, the Vulcan mind probe, and NBC said, "Okay, that's not going to affect our viewers." That's where that came from, and it became part of Star Trek from that day forward. So it's it's just trying to get around censorship.
2: Incredible, incredible stories, uh, every so, one th- of
0: them. Can I ask one last question? Uh, what uh, about the ending? What was the ending? If it if it, if it isn't. Uh, Ilea and what's his name? Iker. What was the
1: um, they, they raced back to Earth in front of V'ger. They got free. And the Enterprise gets back to Earth an hour or so before Vija's is going to be there. And they beamed down with Ilea to Star, Starfleet to uh, a library complex, which had all the information on the Earth and the human race and everything else. And they showed her stuff, visuals so that she could understand that the people on Earth weren't just infesting Earth, they weren't carbon units infesting the Earth that had to be destroyed, sterilized, but that they were viable uh, viable species. And from what she observed, she was able to transmit through mind back to V'ger. And in the last second, just as Vija was about to destroy uh, the human race on Earth, it suddenly stopped and it pulled back so that was the ending and so ilea and the probe left ilea returning her to normal so that she and decker could be part of the series so when they decided they weren't going to do additional episodes of the series they said hey we can do this in a more special effects oriented way and put bob to work and (laughs) create this great light show and do it that way and create a new, a new life form by merging V'ger, Ilia, and uh, Decker together into a new entity, That's which better. was more Star Trek. It was a better ending. John Polvo came up with that. And he pitched it to uh, Gene Roddenberry and Bob Weiss, and they said, yeah, let's do it. One more thing for the special effects people to have to figure out.
2: Oh, man. And- yeah, and if you uh, look at that book, and of course Bob knows how the, all this stuff works, because he had hands-on experience. But it's really amazing to see how clever and uh, the things that they come up with to create the uh, the illusion that makes us believe in these things that, that, that just yeah. can't happen, but they manage to make them happen. And then the funny thing about it is, then we make them happen. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> they,
2: they're impossible. They think of a way to do it. Yeah. If it's a good enough idea, and we actually do it. So it's thing opening doors.
1: You said automatic opening doors. We didn't have those, right? Remember, for us who have some gray in our hairs, we used to step on a mat outside a Safeway, and the door would open. Yeah. You didn't just walk up and it opened for you. It did, you know. But it was that that uh, electronic beam that Star Trek had, and that's that inspired them. God you know, bless the Navy, you, Charlie. The Navy came down and studied the bridge of the Enterprise. I mean, it just it just uh, influenced technology and science in so many different ways and and culture.
0: I assume all assume the TV you're show in Galaxy Quest. Yeah. I, I love it. I love, I love that movie and they do the whole wormhole thing again but all digitally and it's so much better than what we did. Uh, all, everything we did was with motion picture cameras riding on tracks, you know, yeah. with computer they were using punch tape computers. Uh, punch tape is just like a like a stock yeah. ticker. That's what
1: controlled the camera back. Yeah, in
0: those days it was, and it was forever.
1: Yeah. yeah, but Bob, I'll, I'll say it again. I said it earlier, and you may not have been with us, but, um. You know, yeah, CGI is wonderful, and you can do things you guys could never have done the old-fashioned way. But the one thing you did that was better was miniatures. Mm. And you watch uh, uh, the original Star Trek series. You watch uh, Star Trek the motion picture. You watch the first Star Wars. The 2001, for that matter. Those were
2: actual, those were
1: actual miniatures. Right. And that's why they looked better, because they had texture. They had depth. It was a tangible, real thing. No, I, I agree 100%. Yeah. Uh, one, uh, I,
0: I w- can tell you something, When next time you watch the movie, when you watch the wormhole sequence, and look, look all, all of the uh, crew is on the stage, and they're all... The only crew member that is reacting to the fact that the ship is shaking is Ailea? She's yeah. sitting in her seat. She's doing like, and no, everybody yeah. else is perfectly still. And I just thought, you know, if, if I were on the set, would I have noticed that? And he said, uh, yeah, but you know,
1: shouldn't, what, everybody... what was Bob Weiss looking at? Yeah. Uh, what was his, his script continuity person looking at? Uh, yeah. You know, but no, I guess nobody was looking at few, her.
0: I had to watch that where my work print over and, over and over again before I noticed, started noticing things like that yeah I also noticed when i i have only visited the set while it was in production Went long and prosper yes uh, i th- once one t- i was only on the set one time, and they have all of those uh, screens with film projectors running film loops uh, and I could see the frame line of the, you know, like it was a sixty millimeter film and the frame line was mm-hmm. showing in in the and now of course you can't say a word to anybody It's a big union. Yeah set, I knew one person on that set, and I, I mentioned to him, is somebody going to fix that? You know, they, <laughs> but, well, but I, never, I but I no, I was just, out, but it wouldn't have been, it, it never, I don't think it, it, none of that ever got on the film. Stanley yeah. Kubrick would never allow that to happen. Well, yeah. Well, he, you mentioned
1: uh, Galaxy he, Quest. He would, take, he would take 14 months to shoot a movie. <laughs> Man. You mentioned Galaxy Quest, Bob, and it's funny, Mark, because I saw an interview with George
3: Takei, you know, Sulu one time, and somebody asked him about that movie. What did you think of Galaxy Quest? And he says, oh, it's a documentary.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah. Uh, Everyone I know from Star Trek really enjoyed the movie. See, they they didn't mind you making fun of Star Trek if it was done right. I think the NSL skip Galaxy Quest – are two things they all seem to really enjoy. Uh, Quark, not so. You know, they didn't like that one. And
0: and I I also worked on Close Encounters uh, of the Third Kind a few years before. And the other comedy that came out, Paul, have you seen that one? It's about the alien that escapes from Area 54. And it's another one uh, which is really a great comedy. those are my two favorites, the Galaxy Quest, and I think it's Paul. Is that the name of the the alien? Is it yeah.
3: Alf, maybe? There was an mm-hmm. Alf? ALF you, you, no, 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 you no, guys, no,
1: no, no. You no. guys have uh, stronger bladders than me. I'm going to step away for minute. But if you're still here, after I flush, I'll be back. <laughs> That's it. Take the mic with you. That's always fun. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <The laughs> <the laughs> Yes, indeed. While my leg fills up slowly, you you guys—that well, was fun, right, man? I, I guess it was—it was fun for everyone, including me, because we kept a lot of folks around. Either that, or there are dogs and cats and, and uh, you know who are, who now know a lot more than they—they're going for the big time. But uh, while, while I got you still, yeah, I did forget to mention the thing we're doing with Martina and, and uh, Carlton. You could mention that quickly while while uh, that e- edge of light, Carlton. I mean, uh, the holography center. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's doing a um a show. I think it's starting uh, December 11th. Um the holography show. Um she sent me a link. Maybe I should send that link to the um NYSA. And she uh, she sent it to me too. We'll talk about it cuz I just thought you might know cuz you mentioned you in here. I think right. it opens now,
1: December 3rd if if I'm not mistaken.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for correcting it. I've only talked to her on the emails. So. But I
3: imagine most of us will have to see it virtually.
2: And I'm I'm supposed to interview two of the artists, and it might be on the um, put on the NYSA. Yeah. Like, well, you know, maybe we could try a live event or something like that. You know. Um, yeah. Right. We're always well, up. To yeah, the I chat. see
0: the email here.
2: Are you we're, back in America, Carlton? I'm back
0: in America. <laughs> Not the U.S., but America. I'm I'm back on the northern continent. Okay, good to see you. <laughs> Where's your shawl.
3: <laughs> My shawl.
2: And also, anybody who sent me wow, any wow, images wow. and stuff, thank you very much. I'll be looking at that. I, did, I look at everything and thank you. Uh, Job, I think you. Said, if you're still around, thank you. Great, great shots of the. Hague. Uh, that was fantastic. Um. And anyway, I think we. I, I think you know. You guys have been fantastic. You guys and Mark has been. I. We'll wait till he gets back and we'll cheer his empty bladder. There um, he <laughs> Because There he goes. My friend, Mark, thank you. I think we, we, we're going to give you a, a, the, the official NYSA round of applause, so everyone, please.
3: And, and where's the best place to get these books? you just remind us where's the best place to uh, get these?
1: Uh, what would you prefer? Where do you, where, where do you get less money pulled out? Uh, I, get, I get more money if you buy them direct from the publisher and you get your books signed. And you can get them inscribed, too. Is that uh, Jacob, you, Jacobs? JacobsBrownMediaGroup.com. That's Jacobs, J-A-C-O-B-S, Brown, B-R-O-W-N, MediaGroup.com. I'm told you can also type in thesearethevoyagesbooks.com dot com and it'll take you there. Um, but those those come signed, uh, and uh, and if and when you buy them, you can type in if you want a special message written into them. Uh, but you can of course get them from Amazon uh, and all that. But I think Amazon's rich enough.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, why should they make the money? Yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. And I just, you know, in, in full disclosure. I just ordered the uh, the, um, the the DVD for, with the audio because. Uh, oh I, good! Yeah, 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 man.
1: Yeah. You can get that. You can get that as a download too. Um, that would have been smarter. They they release the. Uh, you can cancel your order and reorder it from All Sound, A W E S O, Sound S O U N D, dot com. Uh, Twenty eight hours. I think it's like forty five bucks, maybe fifty, uh, with tax. Uh, 28 hours and it just goes into your mobile device or your computer, but if, uh, if you want to have something to hold, it's also been released on a two-disc DVD set, and that can play in a Blu-ray player or a region-free standard DVD player or in a Windows computer. I don't well, know we, if they'll play in a car. If you've got a DVD player in a car, it might work in a car. Because yeah, that would be, yeah. be a great thing to have on a long car trip. But you can download it into your phone from All Sound and play that in your car as you're driving across country. Yep, we're
2: all driving across country soon. Imagine that. Right, <laughs> hole. <laughs> yeah, man. Look, we, 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 we live in a day of miracle and wonder. It's all, it's, all, yeah. it's all fine. You can't. Uh, just imagine. Don't be I'm mad at people on, who wear uh, masks. That don't wear masks. Don't be
1: mad at. I'm them. up here on a mountaintop. Uh, I came up here to work on books, and get out of the city. So How far are you to, away from?
2: You're in California, right?
1: Yeah, about an hour and a half from L.A., uh, which is great. It's a small town on top of a mountain, and uh, we get actual weather up here. No COVID cases. But I. Um, I'm a writer, so you know, I just I just been working on books and scripts. And But it's uh, been it's been nine months.
2: Hey, it's like we, the shining, man. You're up there, you know, the snow, yeah. the whole thing is scaring me a little bit at this point, Mark, but but, <laughs> but how about the fires? And we're gonna leave there. How about the fire? No no problem. For you, you're at top of the mountain, yeah, don't worry. And if anything you get a good uh, story out of it.
1: Not up here. I haven't had any. Good. Um uh, we've had a lot of fires in California, but not in this area. Well we're gonna let we're gonna let you go now that you went. and and everyone
2: thank you once again if you make sure you're you're on our mailing list because uh as we create more mischief we have to find a way to tell you otherwise it's not as much fun without having a good crowd thank you we're gonna we're gonna the the crew here my crew thank you very much dave dave jim uh uh, jamie Uh,
1: oh man
2: i could do that too you don't get that i got i don't have to set it and do it you know mine mine works but because I play guitar. I, I can't do it with the other hand that
1: well. That's that's why. Yeah, I can't do it with this hand. I but, play guitar, so this hand, I yeah, can do it.
2: That one, no problem. Yeah. We're going to stay a few minutes and right. let you guys leave because it's less rude. Who, who can uh, do it with. Hey, Jay- Jim. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right, guys. we long and across. Thank you. It was a great. Happy
3: holidays to you, my friend. Thanks for all the time. That was amazing. That was yeah. great.
2: Appreciated it a lot.
0: Yeah, fella-
1: piano has been drinking Not me Not me Not me Not me Not me, Not me.